anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, tonight is your answer. Hi, I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, April 13th, and welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy, a quick rundown of some of the key issues One for Democracy is keeping its eye on this week. This week, I'm looking at five issues. First is the kind of continued tracking of what I'm calling the big three, COVID, voting rights, and the infrastructure bill. Also, a couple of notable candidate and election developments this last week, some dynamics around unionization and housing, and some progressive state policy wins. So first, those big three, you know, on COVID voting rights and infrastructure. Although the pace of vaccinations is still strong, there's a lot of growing fear about the slowdown. Some parts of the country, particularly in the South, demand for vaccine shots has already dropped. Additionally, variants are complicating our path out of the pandemic. Here in Michigan, where I live, the UK variant is driving another surge. Research has recently confirmed that our vaccines don't work as well against the South African variant and variants are beginning to pop up among more children, even as schools are on a fast track to opening. So really some questions emerging and some questions for the political implications of how the COVID vaccine is being spread in the, across the country and how we're going to come out of this pandemic. Also ongoing kind of fights over federal voting rights protection in the filibuster. Uh, last week, Senator Manchin wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that he was opposed to any weakening or elimination of the filibuster definitely put those who are pushing for the For the People Act back on their feet, wondering how we're going to get this through. That being said, there's a little bit of chatter about whether Manchin might be open to strengthening the filibuster, restoring it to its kind of intention to promote debate, either for a amendment that would require 40 people to be present in the room to keep a conversation going, or requiring ongoing conversation and 60 votes to have somebody stop speaking rather than the current technicality design of the filibuster, but definitely a hit. There's also CEOs are coming together to push back against state voting level restrictions. There was a big Zoom summit with uh, almost 100 CEOs and aides over the weekend. We're talking about withholding campaign contributions, yanking investments in factories and stadiums for states that are limiting voting rights. So some ongoing kind of push on that. And of course, the ongoing debate around the infrastructure bill pushback against the tax hikes and questions about other sources of revenue to pay for the infrastructure bill. We will see jockeying around what gets included and what gets taken out in terms of the different types of spending and different priorities for the next few months. On the election side for individual candidates, a couple of things, three in particular I want to lift up. One is that the GOP super PAC, the Senate Leadership Fund, has backed Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. There had been questions around whether the Republican national leadership would continue to support her in the face of Trump's criticisms, but having the Senate Leadership Fund support her is a big indicator for that ongoing support. Of course, under Measure 2 passed last cycle, all candidates from all parties now run on a single primary, and the top four advance to the November general election where there's an instant runoff. This means that it's harder for somebody who's more conservative to run against Lisa Murkowski in Alaska because you don't have a Republican and a Democratic independent primary. So it creates some more space for her to stay in that independent in-between lane. 
At the local level, two progressive electoral wins. So Wisconsinites just elected Jill Underly for the state superintendent of public instruction. Uh, this is a key kind of statewide race, and there were a huge coordination of over 30 partner groups across Wisconsin running Get Out the Vote programs. Big win for progressives to push through and elect their candidate to back public education funding and teacher unions and other efforts for public education reform in the state of Wisconsin. And Tashara Jones won as the first black woman to be elected mayor of St. Louis. She won by just over 2,000 votes. And they also were able to flip three city council seats to make the St. Louis City Council a working progressive majority. So in the wake of the Ferguson uprising, the ongoing organizing that has been happening in St. Louis has really tipped the balance there. And now on to this next question, what does that mean in co-governing and to actually push for policy change? Other issues tracking this week on the unionization front, the unions lost their bid to uh, unionize the warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama, in the Amazon warehouse there. It was definitely a defeat for labor advocates who hoped that that unionization would serve as an example for others. There are challenges to the votes that are underway, but all indications seem to be that that unionization effort has failed, although it was definitely notable the national support coming for that unionization effort, higher than some past unionization efforts um, we've seen over the last few years. On the housing front, two things to be paying attention to and the ripple effects for our political dynamics. The eviction moratorium that was scheduled to end at the end of March was extended at the last minute through June. This protects somewhere between 10 to 20 million households who might be at risk of eviction right now. The protection is for anybody who's earning less than $100,000 who has lost income during the pandemic or could become homeless. You know, one in five renters are behind in their rent payments right now, um, disproportionately Black and Latino households. And just by way of comparison, this easily tops the 7 million people who lost their homes in the foreclosure crisis of 2008. We're looking to 10 to 20 million households who might be facing eviction. But there are a lot of court cases coming against it. Six lawsuits have already made their way before federal judges. Three judges ruled to support the eviction moratorium, and three have called it illegal. So there continues to be judicial jockeying. Um, that's why the Biden administration is racing to roll out their $50 billion emergency rental assistance program, trying to get this aid to people so that they can get money in their pockets to catch up on their rent before the possibility of an eviction moratorium ending. Also in the frame of housing, we're looking at a bunch of different reports coming out about the ongoing drivers for housing prices going up. Almost half of new homes are selling within one week of being listed, and there's a record low number of homes available for sale. Big picture, you know, prices are accelerating through a combination of low mortgage rates, a desire for more work from home uh, space, and stock market continues to go up, which is making more money available for people for down payments. You also have a rise in corporate buyers. So large corporations buying up homes to rent them out, which is making the market even tighter. So housing prices are likely to go up if the eviction moratorium is overruled. You're going to see a, a rising level of housing instability and pressure on the housing markets. It's really going to potentially become a dynamic in our electoral debates around who is doing what to help working and middle class people. Something to keep an eye on as we look to the coming months. Lastly, I want to look at some progressive state policy wins that have been happening. In particular, medical marijuana and marijuana legalization. 25 years ago, 
California passed Prop 215, which was the first medical marijuana law in the entire country. Fast forward 25 years and we're seeing rapid legalization spreading across the country. At the end of last month, New York legalized marijuana for adults 21 years and older. It is also moving forward with expungement immediately for a number of marijuana-related convictions. In New Jersey, Governor Murphy signed into law three bills that permit and regulate the use of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. And yesterday, New Mexico Governor Grisham signed into law legislation that legalizes adult cannabis use and set into place one of the most progressive and automatic processes to expunge almost 150,000 past convictions. New Mexico became the seventh state just since last November to put an end to marijuana prohibition. Also in New York, not only did they legalize marijuana, they've been pushing through a number of other progressive legislative wins. They've got a Democratic supermajority with enough votes that some of the conservative Democrats can now occasionally vote no. And this has meant they're really passing more progressive legislation. And I think an interesting example of how building progressive power has ripple effects locally. Um, for example, they've just passed a historic new budget last week, included $311 billion for infrastructure, the first universal broadband plan that caps payments for low-income New Yorkers, $2.4 billion in rent relief, and most significantly, if you're not living in New York, is the Excluded Worker Fund. This is kind of a national model. It's the largest fund of its type anywhere in the country providing $2.1 billion for undocumented New Yorkers who've paid taxes on their income but were ineligible for unemployment benefits or others during the pandemic. So almost 300,000 New Yorkers who are undocumented who were paying taxes who will now be eligible to get aid from the state when they couldn't even get a single stimulus check. Whether this starts to set a model for types of policies that can be looked at elsewhere in the country remains to be seen, but something to track. So that's what we've got for this week. Continue tracking of those big three, you know, COVID, voting rights, and infrastructure, some notable candidate developments, and dynamics around unionization, housing, and progressive state policy wins. I'm Jason Franklin. Thanks for listening to this week's 10 Minutes on Democracy. Look forward to talking with you next week.